And if you're staying in here with me, uh, please turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 12 today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and you're looking in the bulletin, uh, there, is a, there is a mistake there. Uh, the, the reference should say Mark 2, 1 to 12. The scripture is actually right though, so you'll be able to follow along fine. Uh, I just forgot to change the reference. My apologies. Uh, before we read, I want to point one thing out to you. Uh, in chapter 1 of Mark, everybody is flocking to hear Jesus. Jesus is very popular. He's becoming famous. And as of yet, there hasn't been any opposition from human beings. There has been opposition from demons, which is understandable, but not yet from human beings until you get to our story today. Uh, this story is the first of a long string of stories where people come against Jesus. And so as we read, I want you to think about why are people mad at Jesus? Why are they mad at Jesus? Let's read together. And when he, that is Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And when they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. The word of the Lord. Why are people mad at Jesus? Well, sometimes uh, it seems like people get mad at Jesus for the craziest of reasons, and I think this story is a great example. The reason why they're mad at Jesus is found in his statement in verse 5. If you look at verse 5, he says to this paralytic man who was brought by his friends, Son, your sins are forgiven. And it's because of that, which you would think, you know, people would not be upset about saying something like that. After all, the forgiveness of sins is a good thing. And yet the scribes who were experts in the religious law, they were religious leaders of the day. When they heard him say that, they immediately accused him of blasphemy. Now it's clear they were right about one thing. Only God can forgive people's sins. Okay, they were right about that. They were wrong, however, to assume that God was not sitting in the room with them. And so they made the wrong conclusion. They made the conclusion, it must be that Jesus is a blasphemer because only, only God can forgive sins. Jesus is obviously not God, and so therefore he's a blasphemer. 
Jesus throughout this story is, is going to show us in different ways. Here is the right logic. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus is the one sent by God, God himself, from God himself, into the world to deliver the forgiveness that God alone can pay for. And therefore, he's not blaspheming. He is the one to whom we should come, just like the people were coming back then. And so look at your bulletin. I want to meditate with you on this story a little bit today. Just kind of run a few things over our minds. Uh, First of all, in verses 1 to 4, we're going to see the crowded house. The crowded house. How do we come to Jesus? What does it mean to come to Jesus? Secondly, in uh, verse 5, we're going to see the great gift, which is the gift of forgiveness of sins. What Jesus offers us when we come to him. And then finally, in verses 6 to 12, we're going to see the divine authority that Jesus claims. Why is Jesus able to give the gift of forgiveness? And why is he alone able to give that gift to you and to me? So first of all, let's look at how we come to Jesus. There's a crowded house in verses 1 to 4. Everybody's coming to him. Uh, When you were a kid, your, your parents may have said to you at some point, boy, we're about to have a come to Jesus meeting. Did they ever say that? What did they mean when they said that? Yep, that's right. A whooping is coming. (laughs) Uh, That's what it was for us. (laughs) It's going to be a scary encounter, right? It's not going to be a good encounter. It's going to be a very scary encounter that's going to involve judgment and high levels of evaluation. And we already know we're going to fail the evaluation because that's why they said it's going to be a come to Jesus meeting. Now, I understand why that phrase is used because it actually is a biblical fact that one day there will be a great, capital C, come to Jesus meeting and Jesus is the judge and every human being, man, woman, boy and girl is going to stand before Jesus and give a full count and be evaluated on their life and it will not be a good day for many people. The Bible says that very plainly. But it's interesting that in the earthly ministry of Jesus, when people are coming to him, it's almost never focused mainly on judgment or condemnation, it's almost always focused on mercy and grace. Therefore, people are absolutely falling over themselves to get to a come to Jesus meeting. Uh, my brother and I would go try to hide when a come to Jesus meeting was coming. People in this story are running to a come to Jesus meeting. Look at verse 1. As soon as they heard Jesus was back in town from his little preaching tour, his first tour of Galilee, He came back to Capernaum. They understood he was back at the house, which we're left to assume is the house they were in in the previous chapter, Simon Peter's house, where Jesus basically lived when he came back into town. When they heard that, so many people came to Jesus that they couldn't even fit in the house. Did you see? The house was completely crowded from wall to wall and from front to back, so much so that the door itself was completely covered. People were outside the door, pressing on the door just to get Jesus within eye shot or at least within earshot. People are desperate to be around Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Now, what would you think Jesus would do when he got all those desperate people in front of him? Heal, cast out some more demons, do some more mighty miracles, maybe feed them with Bread, just to awe and amaze the crowd. Instead, what do you get? Look at verse, verse 2. And he was preaching 
the word to them. And this is great. All these people are coming around. Yeah, they probably heard about the miracles, but all these people are there, a captive audience, hanging on his every word because Jesus is preaching. In fact, that was Jesus' favorite thing, his number one priority to do, to preach. He went everywhere preaching and teaching. He told Peter in the last chapter, remember, this is the whole reason I came out from heaven is to come and preach in all the towns because I want to open up God's word to people. I want people to hear from their maker, to hear from their creator, and to know the way into a relationship with their creator, which you can only know by listening to the words that he says. And so Jesus was, above all things, a preacher. And people flocked. The room was full to hear his voice. And can you believe, I mean, can you imagine how electric it was to have Jesus as the preacher? He filled synagogues on the Sabbath day every week. And throughout the week, they came and found him at the house. Sometimes they would go to him in such large numbers, he had to go out into the woods and into the desert places just to accommodate the whole crowd. That's the whole reason, by the way, why he fed the 5,000 is because they were there to hear him preach and teach the word of God. Wow. So desperate are they to, to hear the word of Jesus that a group of men, we assume they're men, maybe there were some women in the group, cared for this paralytic man so much that four of them grabbed the bed, carried him, and tried to get him in the house. And they couldn't even get him in the door because apparently the people who were there listening to Jesus were so interested in it that they didn't even want to give up their place to a lame man. But those hardy souls, those great friends, we all need friends like this, would not take no for an answer. And instead of giving up, they went around to the back of the house. And in Palestine in this day, every house was flat-roofed, just about every house. In fact, they used the roof as a room, basically a living room, where they ate their meals. And a lot of times they even slept up on the roof because it was just cooler up there. And so there was always a ladder or a staircase around the back of the house. They took their friend around, got two ladders, carried this man up the roof, and nothing would stop them. They dig a hole in Peter's roof. The word used there is they dig a hole. Like they're actually like breaking apart the roof. Jesus is up there preaching and dust starts falling down and straw starts falling down. And everybody's wondering what's going on. And then all of a sudden the hole's big enough to fit a man in on a bed. And here he comes floating down. Right in the middle of the sermon, can you believe it? And he comes to rest on the floor right at Jesus' feet. Now, why am I making such a big deal about this scene, the crowded house? Because it's a picture, y'all, of what it has always meant to come to Jesus. Everywhere you look in Jesus' life, this is what happens everywhere he goes. A crowd gathers to hear him preach, and people... Hang on his every word, and people bring their friends. People can't take no for an answer. They want to bring everybody they know and love to Jesus. When you read about the early church in the book of Acts, the apostles do the same thing. They gather the church on Sundays. The crowd of people are there to wait upon the word of Jesus, and they're there to pray, to intercede, to bring the people who are not near Jesus near to Jesus. Like here in these first four verses, you have basically a recipe for Christian ministry. 
You have a description of what the church is supposed to be, and you have a description of what it looks like for you as an individual to really come to Jesus by faith. You've got to hang on his word, and you've got to be bold and persistent in prayer. I mean, what was it for those four men to do for their paralytic friend but to pray? I mean, they were praying with their actions. They were praying boldly. They even made Peter take out an insurance claim. Uh, one writer says they didn't care about the property loss. They, they were, I mean, that's sometimes the way we got to pray about our friends and loved ones. We got to wrestle with God over them. And long that those who are not near to Jesus would be brought near to him. That, that's their main concern. That, that's what it says there. When they realized they could not bring him near to Jesus, they went around to the roof and made a way to bring them near to Jesus. Let me tell you, as your pastor, from the very beginning when we first started Greater Hope, I have thought in my mind, Mark 2 is the kind of church I want to have. I still think that. In fact, I see that among us to a great degree. I think we have plenty of room to growth, as we always do. We always will. But the essence of what I've been praying for and what I know you've been praying for, what we've all been working towards, is that we would have a room of people, maybe even two or three rooms of people, on a Sunday and at houses of people throughout the week who are gathering. And we're not, we're not chasing crowds just for crowds' sake. That, that's kind of... That's a waste of time. But what we're looking for is God to awaken people to want to hear from Jesus. And when the room's too crowded, they don't care. They'll stand at the door to hear Jesus. And when their friends can't get there because they're too lame to get there, so to speak. Here it's literal. He's lame. Sometimes our friends are lame in other ways. We won't take no for an answer. We will beg the Lord, give me Mulberry or I die. As John Knox used to pray about Scotland, give me Mulberry or I die. That's the church. The crowded house, the coming to Jesus, the prayer, the word. Nobody ever came to Jesus in faith who didn't hear about him in the word. And nobody ever came to Jesus in faith who wasn't first prayed for by somebody else who was already there. I challenge you to name somebody. Who prayed for you? When you were lame on the cot, who prayed for you? When you didn't care a thing in the world about Jesus, you thought he was the lamest thing on the planet, who prayed for you? Who carried you? Who spoke the word to you? From whose lips did you hear Jesus speak? Who gave you the Bible that you read and heard Jesus speak? And now think about it. Who do you need to be carrying? Who do you need to be praying for? Who, who do we need to be inviting? Who do we need to be telling the message of Jesus both here on Sunday and in our homes and lives throughout the week? This is a picture of how people come to Jesus. Parents can do this. Grandparents can do this. Friends can do this. Pa yes, even pastors can do this. We can all have a part of this. What part is God calling you to play in our crowded house? 
What an amazing thing if at 9 and 11 we couldn't even close the doors because we had to sit people out there. And again, it's not about the numbers at all. What it's about is an eagerness to hear the, the Savior. All right, that's the first thing. Now, secondly, what happens when we get there? What happens when we get to Jesus and come to him? And this is where the forgiveness of sins comes in. This is where I want you to see why people got mad at Jesus. Because here's this man coming down from the roof, and he lands at Jesus' feet. And it says in verse 5, When Jesus saw their faith, Jesus saw that they believed. He saw it by their actions. He saw it by... Well, first of all, he can just see it because he's, you know, Jesus has this ability to look into people. We see that later in the story. He knew what the scribes were thinking before they even voiced it. And here he looks and he sees the faith of the people gathered. And the first thing he says to that man is, Son, which is a word of endearment. I mean, it's a word for little, little child of mine, basically. It's, not, it's very rarely used. Only twice does Jesus use it to talk to people. Little child, your sins are forgiven. Now think about it for a minute. What would you expect Jesus to say in that moment? Is that what you would have expected him to say? As the paralytic man falls at his feet, the dust is everywhere, Peter's probably fuming in the back. Right? We know Peter. He was upset. We know. He doesn't say he was, but we know he was. Well, for starters, I would think Jesus would say, wow, you're paralyzed. Be healed. Walk. I would think he would address that problem first. After all, he's got to know that's the reason, mainly, why they wanted to get him near to Jesus. I can't think of many other physical ailments worse in life than to be paralyzed. Can you? It would be awful. What a relief it would be for a paralyzed person to receive the use of their limbs again. And yet Jesus doesn't say that. He looks at the man and says, your sins are forgiven you. God is going to forgive you your transgressions. Have you ever gone shopping for something and you didn't get any of the things you were actually going for, but you ended up buying some other things because they caught your eye? This is especially true when you just go shopping for fun, you know, like for, especially when you go to a place like a flea market. Do you ever go to a flea market? The thing about a flea market is you do not even know what's going to be there because it's new every time. People just bring whatever they bring. And so you get there and you may have an idea of what you're looking for, but you almost never leave a flea market with exactly what you went for. But sometimes, and this is rare, but sometimes you leave a flea market with something even better than you imagined. It's, it's like a true treasure. And it could even become like one of the favorite things that you have in your possession. And you walk away surprised and you walk away excited about it. Well, I think that, you know, this man probably had to start feeling that way. He was not necessarily looking for an announcement of forgiveness. He was shopping for new legs, new arms. But when Jesus announced that, this is what we got to get into our minds. And I'm not, I, I would not ever want to dismiss the pain of someone struggling with a physical ailment, right? That is very deep, and Jesus cares about that. I'm not dismissing that at all. But we have to realize in our minds, it is a far more valuable thing for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven than to say, paralyzed man, get up and walk. Mm 
To Jesus, that is the greatest thing he could ever do for you and me and for him. That's why he starts with it first. He's going to heal the man. But he's going to heal the man, he says, only to prove that he had the authority to do the forgiving. Because, of course, healing somebody from paralysis is obvious. I mean, you can see it with your eyes. I mean, here's a guy laying there. You know he's been paralyzed. a small town. Everybody knows everybody. You know the guy. And here he goes walking out the room. Obvious. And so people could reason from what they could see that Jesus could do to what they could not see, which Jesus also could do. But the, the thing they couldn't see was the priority for Jesus, and it was the number one thing that he wanted to bestow on not just that man, but on actually all the people that were gathered there to hang on his word. The whole reason Jesus preached the gospel, and the whole reason the gospel is preached today, is God wants to pronounce the forgiveness of sins over our lives. Now, of course, we don't think the forgiveness of sins is all that big of a treasure, oftentimes. Have you ever heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs? You know, it's this, as, as a former teacher, this is like something that's t- told to you all the time. As a teacher, you may not be familiar with it. It's a pyramid that basically says, here are the main things a person needs to the things they need the least. And, you know, there's a lot of truth to it. At the bottom is just food, clothing, shelter. And then it goes all the way to the top, which is basically spiritual fulfillment. But that's the least thing that you need in your life, according to Maslow. And yeah, okay, I kind of get what it's saying. Obviously, for physical life to be sustained, you need food first, right? But according to Jesus, you are far more than your physical life. You are far more than your body. You're, You're more than a sack of bones living for 80 years and then dying. You are a soul in a body. And that soul is going to be lost. It will be lost. Because you and I have violated the commandments of God endlessly in our lives. That's sin. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Short of catechism. True statement. But it's not just a matter of, oh man, I, I, I went a little too fast in the school zone, so God's going to come down hard on me. Don't think of sin that way. It's not a minor transgression. When God says in his law, do not murder, do not hate your brother in your heart, do not lust after someone who's not your spouse, do not commit adultery, do not, when the Bible says do not lie, what it's saying is God is opening up his heart and saying, look, this is who I am. This is how I treat people and treat everyone, all of creation. And this is how I want you, O oh people made in my image, to also treat one another and to treat me. When you fail to do that, it's like a child looking at the father's face and saying, I don't want to be like you. Every time we sin, it's that way. God takes it personal because it is personal to him. And not only that, it's more than personal. It's judicial. Here's the difference between God and us. When someone wrongs me, I need to forgive them because... I don't have any judging rights over that person, right? I I don't hold them accountable. It's not my job to hold them accountable. Um, My job is to simply receive their apology and forgive them and move on with my life. And that's what you should do. Jesus tells you to do it. But with God, it's different. God happens to have judging power over people's lives. And if God were just to say, you know what, sin, shmin, not a big deal, forget about it. 
what would happen to the justice equilibrium of the universe? It would mean that the judge, the only judge that there is, by the way, the only one who will actually hold anyone accountable ultimately for anything they ever do, has now vacated the chair. I can't think of something more scary than that. And so forgiveness for God is this massive undertaking where he has to find out a way to remain just and yet at the same time forgive the sinner who deserves judgment. And through Jesus Christ, Jesus sitting here telling this man, your sins are forgiven. He's announcing, here I am, I'm God, sent into the world to pay for your sins so that God will remain just and yet you will not be judged for your sins ever. You deserve the judgment, but I took the judgment. So that now you can receive the blessing that you never earned, but I earned for you. That's a massive, I mean, that is quite, I mean, we could say God moved heaven and earth to forgive sins. And so for him, you got to kind of, in a way, turn Maslow's pyramid on its head. Uh, the spiritual satisfaction of the soul before its maker is your greatest need. And Jesus Christ, when we come to him, hanging on his words and praying and pouring out our hearts, that's what he gives first. He still cares about the rest. He cares about the paralysis. He cares about your finances. He cares about your hurts. He cares about your pains. He cares about your emotional problems. He cares about all of that. But Jesus wants to restore your soul. Do you value forgiveness that way? Do you see what God had to do? He had to move heaven and earth to forgive you. Let's look at the last thing this morning. Why is it Jesus who can do this? The scribes in verse 6 begin to question in their own hearts. They begin to basically debate within themselves. We've already talked about it. If only God can forgive sins, Jesus is obviously not God, and so therefore God must, Jesus must be blaspheming. But what they had wrong was that second thing, right? I mean, they had that wrong. Yes, one minus one equals zero, but one plus one equals two, right? They came up with a zero sum. This guy is crazy. He must be blaspheming. Instead of recognizing that it might actually be true that only God can forgive sins, and guess what? God is actually in the middle of this room right now. And therefore, he's not blaspheming. He is actually giving to this man what he says he's going to give. He is actually, at that moment, forgiving this man of his sins. Jesus has the qualifications to do that. And that's why Jesus, in response, he sees their thoughts. He knows what they're thinking. And he says in verse um, 10, I am going to do this healing so that you would know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I, the Son of Man, have authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus presents his credentials. Have you ever been in a situation where you were out in public and an emergency suddenly happened with somebody around you and you had to go and attend to it or help? And it's rare, but it happens. And I'm, I'm assuming at least one or two people in the room have been in the situation. You, you observed a car wreck or... You saw someone fall over with a heart attack or whatever when you were out. How comforting is it in that situation when someone runs up and says, don't worry, I'm a doctor. 
I'll take it from here. I mean, in those situations, I'm praying for that, actually, right? I'm praying for that very thing to happen. Somebody who knows more than I do, somebody who's got more skill than I do to administer care in this situation. Well, when Jesus said, I am the Son of Man, with authority on earth to forgive sins, that's exactly what he was saying. He was saying, don't worry, I am the doctor. I am the one that was promised long ago. Uh, The word Son of Man is a phrase that comes from Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament. You may want to write it down and go read it later. In Daniel 7, Daniel sees a vision of God on his throne in heaven, and everybody's worried about what's going to be done about the chaos on the earth. And it says that Daniel saw one like the Son of Man come from earth to heaven, and God bestowed on that Son of Man authority over all the kings so that that Son of Man could bring God's kingdom back into the world. Order could be restored. Life could be better. Forgiveness could be given. Reconciliation could be made. And so when Jesus says, I'm the Son of Man, this is the first time he uses that word, and it will not be the last time. He More than any other phrase, he describes himself as the Son of Man. Which means, y'all, I am not blaspheming. I am not blowing smoke. I am the one. Because I am not only a man, I am also God. And because I'm not just God, I'm God in the flesh. A God who can die on the cross. A God who can pay the price that forgiveness costs because I'm that person when I pronounce you forgiven you are forgiven your sins are separated from you as far as the east is from the west he throws them the Bible says at the bottom of the ocean floor never to raise them again The forgiveness that Jesus gives is permanent. And if you can believe it this morning, the forgiveness Jesus gives is a forgiveness for your past, your present, and even your future sins. Permanent. Because he's the son of man. Can you imagine when Jesus looked at this man's eyes, this paralyzed man, and he said to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine the thoughts that could have been going through Jesus' mind? His eyes locked that guy's eyes. Knowing that for him to say that, very expensive statement. Jesus was going to have to endure the cross. He looked in his eyes and saw it. The five bleeding wounds he bears that we sang about earlier. The wounds in his hands and his feet and in his side would all have to be opened up for that man. And he was willing to do it. He said the expensive statement because he was willing to back it up. And y'all, it's so true. If that man were the only sinner in the world that God chose to save, he still would have done it. And if you were the only sinner in the world that God chose to save, oh Christian, he would have done it. Jesus administers his grace to us as a group, but he administers his grace also to us as individuals. He bore our names on his heart. He carried our particular sins on his body when he died on the cross. The Son of Man, the one worthy 
of all the kingship and all the glory in the world. And so that's why at the end, verse 12, when the man immediately rose and went out of the, out of the room, everybody was amazed. And instead of glorifying Jesus directly, they glorified God. They recognized that in Jesus they were seeing God work. And they started praising God. And they, they sang one of the most beautiful praise songs ever written. We never saw anything like this. That's a beautiful hymn right there. We never saw anything like this. I mean, just think about what they saw. It's actually a little humorous. This man who had to be lowered in from the roof because no one would move out of the way for them to walk down the middle aisle of the house, laying motionless with little spindly legs because he hadn't used his legs in forever, suddenly stands up, picks up his bed, and walks from where he is with Jesus all the way out the door, which he couldn't have gotten into earlier. And so what that means, if you think about it, is that man had to walk by and say, excuse me, excuse me, pardon me, excuse me, excuse me, maybe a hundred times? How long would that have taken for the man to make his way out? And everybody's just sitting there. Wow. Excuse me, excuse me, pardon me. I got somewhere to go, and you don't need to carry me now. I think that was quite the object lesson. That if Jesus can do that, if he can do the thing that we think is so impossible, which it is, and the thing we think is so obviously amazing, which it is, he can do that thing which is sneaky impossible. And sneaky amazing, the thing you can't really see, that moment when God says to a sinner who's guilty, I judge you not, instead I receive you as my own. Son, little child of mine, daughter, forgiven. This morning I want you to know, you can know that too. You can know that too. We're called to be amazed at forgiveness. We're called to give God all the glory for forgiveness. We're called to know it's the most important need in our whole lives, and we're called to know the only way to get it is to sit and wait upon his word and to pray, 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 and never give up praying. Even if it's not room at the door, we come through the roof. We pray till we know that we are sons, we are daughters, we are forgiven.